0: All right. Hello. Welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird at Eastern Illinois University, and I'm joined by Ramya. So I am Prakash, uh, who is at Grand Valley State University. Ramya, how are you doing today?
1: It's a fine Michigan uh, January day. Um, so I am well, I am uh, warm, and uh, I only slid twice today. On the st- oh, <laughs> that's not bad. That's not bad.
0: Yes, that's, that's not bad at all. And I mean, honestly, a January Michigan Day is just a perfect day for podcasts.
1: Yes, uh, not for much else, but definitely for podcasts. Um, <laughs> so this week, we uh, are speaking with Stephen Kahn.
0: Yes, we are Stephen Kahn, who is the W.E. Smith Professor of History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Um, he was on to talk to us about his newest book, Lies of the Land, Seeing Rural America for What It Is and Isn't, uh, which was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Um, mm-hmm. Before we jump in, um, Rami, is there anything you, know, you took away from the conversation uh, or perhaps our listeners should be, um, I don't know, keen to listen to? Other than all of it, of course.
1: Um, I I mean, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I probably say this about every book. uh, But uh, (laughs) this one really stood out to me because right off the bat, um, you know, he talks about this spatial emptiness that is a part of how the mythology of rural America is built. Um, But also largely how we think of America, right? And... I think for me as somebody who grew up in India that was it really resonated Mm -hmm. and I really appreciated just how how much care he brings in to talk about place and space and its relationship to sort of the mythology of rural identity and what we you know for those of us who live in urban areas how we might sort of better understand the demographic shifts. Yeah. Um, and whether you think about current politics or not is secondary, but just sort of understanding, you know, where America, where rural America has come from and where it's going, right? And that, that is not an eight, of course. Um, but that it's not a homogenous sort of thing. But yes, yeah. there's a mythology that sort of homogenizes and creates a particular narrative. Um, and he brings a lot of care to it, the way he disassembles it.
0: Yeah. I, you know, second everything you just said and would just, and would just add sort of, yeah, the structure in in which he sort of is reevaluating or, or simply just looking at rural America in the 20th century seriously, which is um, there's no such thing as one rural America. And in fact, Mm -hmm. you know, if we take these nuanced perspectives, we actually see quite a bit of variety Mm -hmm. um, across all of America, but, you know, a lot of this book does focus on uh, on the Midwest, which is of particular interest uh, for our, for us and our listeners.
1: Yes. And, and you know, just sort of to add one more thing to me, I really appreciate his sort of, he brings, he sort of points a mirror to a lot of America and how Americans might think of themselves, but he does it in the most sensitive mm-hmm. way possible. This mm-hmm. is not some tirade on, you know, my, the mythology, right. but it's it's, there's a lot of care. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that. Um, and it's a fantabulously quick read, a quick read and not in like a sense of, oh my God, it's so boring, I'm flipping pages, but I just, I'm <laughs> I just I'm just reading it cause it's just, it makes me hungry. So- um,
0: Agreed, agreed. Yeah. That was a great conversation. It's a great book. Um, everyone go out and buy it, of course. Mm-hmm. Otherwise the only the only thing we have to announce is of course I know everyone's already thinking about preparing for the annual meeting of the Midwestern History Association uh, which will be uh, taking place in late May um, uh, yeah so we'll undoubtedly see you in Grand Rapids Michigan.
1: Yes uh, preferably over a bill
0: Deal 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 um, all right well should we uh, should we make a pod?
1: Let's go jazz hands. Um, Welcome to the pod. So rural America, you know, isn't lost or being forgotten. And it's a central piece of American history. You write, um, look past the narcotic nostalgia and the political rhetoric. And it's easy enough to see that rural spaces reflect the work of most of the major forces that have shaped 20th century America, especially after World War II. So before we dive into the many aspects of the book, would you mind sharing with the readers what led you to the topic and, you know, what path led you to re-examine the role and place of rural America in history?
2: Sure. I think there's that, that there's a two-part answer to that question. The first is that uh, about 10 years ago, I published a book on what I called the anti-urban tradition, in American life. And and what I tried to do in that book, is called Americans Against the City. Not a bad little book, actually. Um, what I tried to do in that book was to kind of explore this paradox that we we are a highly urbanized nation, one of one of really one of the central continuities, I think, in American history from 1790 is the increasing urbanization of the population. That trend line has hardly ever changed uh, across 200 plus years. Uh, but we're filled with people who really, really dislike their cities. Uh, and that rhetoric, you know, you can. It starts with Jefferson. You can find it in Thoreau, uh, Henry Adams in the nineteenth century, and and it continues apace, and it continues right up to twenty twenty four. When all you have to do is to listen to almost any Republican politician, and within four or five minutes, they will say something nasty about American cities. So I wanted to kind of look at what this tradition was, and uh, where it came from, and how it shaped. Uh, policies and places um, across the 20th century. so that book in in some ways was uh, I, I started to glance at uh, what the what the alternative was if we hated our cities what did we love ah we loved. The, the, the notion of a Jeffersonian yeoman farmer. And that's um, what Americans continue to come back to. So that was one reason I decided, well, let's, let's do this book on rural America. And I think of it as a kind of companion or almost a sequel to that book I did on anti-urbanism 10 years ago. So the second reason I decided to do this book is because for the last 20 years, I've lived in a very small town in southwest Ohio in a very rural place. And since 2015, when I moved to Miami University, I've been teaching in a very small town in a very rural place. And so I, I, I'm surrounded by these spaces. I go through them uh, every day. And it seemed to me I was kind of obligated to understand them. Uh, and, and that, was, that mm-hmm. was part of what drove me to do this book.
0: Great. and I actually sort of love the way that you, you bring in sort of your personal stories and, and in the landscapes that you're immersed in as you, you're writing this book. In the opening pages of the book, you note that you know, Americans' uh, descriptions of rural America has been, as you say, quote, caught between the language of crisis and the language of myth. You know, this is rhetoric that we hear often. Rural America is an economic crisis, a technological crisis, an opioid crisis. Um, But also, you know, rural America is where virtue seems to rest, right? It is also a space mythologized Um, based in lingering Jeffersonian tropes of the omen farmer. We often hear that the quote unquote real America still exists in rural America, right? right? Yeah. Um, what is it about this like rhetorical trap that is <laughs> problematic or maybe annoying to you as a scholar? Yeah. Um, well, and and what does this language obscure about how we should be understanding you know the history of rural America?
2: Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things in response to that. Um, when I sat down to write this book, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try to offer my explanation for the crisis, uh, and I'm going to do this historically because that's all I was hearing about. Uh, certainly. Uh, in the last 10 years, right? That's all anybody has been talking mm-hmm. about. That's what's been on the front pages of the paper. But then when I began to poke into it, again, because we're historians here, so uh, we have the luxury of, of going back, what I discovered is you can find exactly the same language that we're using now in the 1980s, the 1970s, the 1950s, the 1920s, the 1880s. And so it began to occur to me that, in fact, uh, if, if this is the only language we use to describe what's going on in, in rural places, this isn't very helpful. It's, it clearly hasn't gotten us very far since we keep using the language over it. It's not as if the crisis somehow ever got resolved. Um, and, and so that was, I think, maybe the first way in which I thought, I, I, I want to think about this differently and I want to dispense with the notion of crisis because I just don't think that that's correct. I think what the crisis really measures is the distance between the realities of rural life, whether it's in 2024 or in 1884, uh, the distance between the realities and the myth that we have created about rural America. And that myth, again, goes all the way back to, to Jefferson. It probably goes back further than that, but you know, for historians of the United States, we can start there. Um, it, 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 it's a myth that's largely created not by rural people themselves, but by, uh, you know, uh, writers and, uh, and, and religious figures and philosophers and whatnot who, who come from, from urban spaces, uh, urban places. And, and, uh, and, and so when you, when you look at all of the heavy, heavy baggage that this rural myth has to carry. Uh, Rural America as the source of virtue, of moral good, of of community, all this stuff. um, Well, it it can't, real life can't help but be a disappointment as compared to all of that. Uh, And so that's really what I was trying to get at here by by saying, look, let's let's not talk in either of these terms anymore uh, because they're not useful. Let's think in different ways.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you lay this out right uh, off the bat in the preface where you remarked that when talking with a Chinese friend, it struck you that, you know, America and China are about the same size when it comes to landmass but have vastly different populations to straddle. You then remarked that your friend thinks the lack of people in rural America is almost a feeling of disembodiment and that the la- lack of people strikes them as quintessentially American. You know, as somebody who grew up in India, these lines really struck a chord with me. Mm. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little about that.
2: Sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, and, and, and thank you for saying that, that, it, it struck you as someone who grew up in India because that, that, um, that's important to me. Um, I think that's part of the mythology uh, or let's say that's part of the, the contrast that we have set up, that urban life is crowded and, and hectic and uh, uh, anxious making and, and so on and so forth. And rural America is peaceful and stable. Um, and, and somehow it's where you go when you need to relax. And that's predicated on the notion that there just aren't very many people there, uh, that the spaces are empty and, and quiet and, and whatnot. Um, so I, I, I guess that's part of, I I think that's part of what is, um, It's a conundrum because at the same time, while that's what a lot of Americans value about rural life, it's also what people are often and have been for a hundred years really upset about rural life, which is to say it's being depopulated. Um, You know, you can you go through the. Uh, the map of the middle of the country, and you can pull up these little towns and look at their population, and many of them peaked at the First World War. Uh, places have been emptying out. Uh, so, so that emptiness is also uh, feeds that sense of crisis. Uh, Americans should live here, but they don't. They, they would be better off if they were out in the country, but everybody's leaving. Uh, and and that I think is part of what I was interested in in this notion of empty.
1: One of the other things you know, when thinking about this notion of empty, was the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, I'm I've made a career now um, by you know chasing the Army Corps of Engineers, um, and I so I found the first chapter of your book really illuminating. Um, you know, I. Must add that I wish your book was actually around when I was writing my dissertation because, my God, it remained my job here. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you contend uh, that we might see the Army Corps of Engineers as an integral part of the termination era for Native Americans. Um, And, you know, to, to me, that's a fact of history. The way you put it, though, sort of. Makes me feel like, oh, man, if your book had been around, I could have just said this and nobody would have questioned me. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but, you know, um, the Army Corps of Engineers, indeed, you know, are they're everywhere in the Midwest. And so I was wondering if you could, you know, talk a little about the pervasive military, um, but engineering presence of the Corps everywhere. And especially in rural America, which is, you know, epitomized through the sort of hidden plain sight infrastructures. Right.
2: Yep. So. Yeah, uh and, and that's very flattering to say, uh, Ramya, uh, thank you for that. So at some point I, I I was I started to dive into the Army Corps of Engineers, and I thought to myself, I could actually do an entire book on this. And I decided not to for a set of reasons. It is it is an enormous topic, as you know better than I. Um, it's also not easy to get at. Uh, because what I discovered, at any rate, I don't know if this was your experience, it's a very decentralized organization. It's been around for 200 and almost 50 years. Uh, the archive, they, whenever I would call people in one place, they would say, oh, no, 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 you need to call this other place. And I would call that other place, and they would say, oh, no, 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 you need to call somebody over there. So I found it to be very, what's the word I'm, shifty. <laughs> um, and it exists, you know, as this... Um, really unusual uh, organizational structure whereby it is part of the U.S. Army, but it reports directly to Congress and it gets its appropriations directly from Congress. So in this way, because of of its of its bureaucratic organization, it, it has grown to be just unbelievably powerful. Now, uh, that's a preface to, to the question you just posed at me. I think one of the things that struck me as I was doing this book I, I started with um, trying to wrestle with and try to uh, kind of lay out the extent to which the federal government has been um, uh, actively involved in the development of rural spaces, and and I began to you know so so when you teach the survey course in American history, you can start with the Homestead Act, and then you get to the New Deal and the farm subsidy programs. And so those are sort of all obvious ways in which the federal government makes rural America possible. And and we know this even today, the balance of payments uh, uh, is, is, is weighted heavily towards rural states. They get more money from the federal government than they send in in taxes and so on and so forth. But, but, but as I sort of dug into this a little further, I, I really began to become impressed by just how much the military uh, is involved in all of this. The Army Corps of Engineers, um, I think, sets the tone for how Americans have viewed our relationship with the land. In rural cultures, places in other countries. I'm thinking particularly of Europe, maybe, Ramya, this, this is true in India, I just don't know. Um, but but what, what has developed over centuries, or did develop over centuries, was a sense of how you worked with the land that you were in. How did you make it sustainable? Uh, what could you grow? What could you not grow? Uh, how, how were you going to handle the climate and the and the cycles of, of rain and whatnot? In this country, the Army Corps of Engineers sees the landscape as something to be conquered and tamed, and that, in turn, uh, shaped uh, the way the way we farm, uh, but also the way we have looked at land altogether. So, more than anything else, what the Corps has done is to control the water. And in the early 19th century, the Corps was involved uh, pretty centrally in in the canal era, especially uh, real big in Ohio. Um, And then ultimately things like uh, shipping channels, dredging, levee projects, uh, uh, waterway straightening, irrigation, uh, reservoirs, flood control, all of the ways in which uh, we try to control the water, again, rather than adapting to what the climate and the landscape offer, we recreate it uh, in, in, a, in what I want to see as a, as a kind of military conquest. And the Army Corps of Engineers has been doing that since uh, the turn of the 19th century, and it continues to do it today. And I think, Rami, your point as well, um, this is one of these things that, uh, this, this is the way in which the role of the federal government, uh, which is absolutely central to rural life, is hidden from sight. Because what you, you know, on any given day, you drive mm-hmm. past this lake, which is, in fact, an artificially created reservoir. It looks lovely in the fall colors and so on and so forth. And maybe you take a boat out and you go fishing. Seems somehow like part of the natural world, and you have no real recollection uh, or or no real cognizance uh, that this is a federally funded um,
0: uh, engineering project. Yeah, with like an explicit purpose of economic development in those spaces, right? That's right.
1: Yeah, and my uh, unsolicited opinion, you should write that book on the Army Corps of Engineers. It will make <laughs> much easier. But it's um, <laughs> just selfish me. But um, but I think sort of, you know, uh, that, that through line of the Corps of Engineers, you know, being so seminal.
2: Yeah, I, I will say this, uh, you know, and, 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 it, and it may be a slight exaggeration but I'm not sure there's a single watershed anywhere in the continental United States that hasn't been altered by the Army Corps of Engineers. Maybe, I may be slightly wrong about that, but I think that's a fair enough statement. And when you think about the implications of that, in terms of just how much area land is being covered, right, when these watersheds are reshaped and and whatnot, when we begin to look at rural America as a landscape of conquest, Uh, you know, by the Army Corps of Engineers, but also by the army itself, this was something I didn't write about because I think others have, you know, by anybody's best estimate between 1790 and 1890, there were slightly more than 1600 military encounters between native people and federal troops. So before you can even have a rural in our imagination, you have to clear the space of the people who were there to begin with. Mm -hmm. That's a military project. And that's the federal government. And there we are again. But, it, but in that empty space, you don't see that. You don't feel that. You aren't made aware of it.
0: Well, I, I, what I think you know, this gets at is sort of thinking about rural spaces as you know, whether projects of engineering, but also militarized histories as well, which I think is like a real strength of this book is that you give mm-hmm. us several different lenses to reconsider rurality, right? Like rural is too often defined as agricultural. Yeah. Right. But as you Mm -hmm. know, rural places are often some of the most industrialized spaces, right? Small company or factory towns dot and have dotted the American landscape throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. And, and, you know, often as explicit goals of local and national politicians. Um, You know, one of your chapters, you track the history of Senator Herman Talmadge from Georgia, who worked to pass the Rural Development Act of 1972. Um, And I wonder, you know, just for our listeners to sort of get at, you know, this industrial Rural place, like what? What are his goals with that legislation? Yeah. What problems was he trying to address in in the seventies, um, and and what was the draw of moving or starting factories in rural places? It's a great question. What what that bill, and and what Talmadge
2: thought he was up to, was. Addressing the problem which Americans had started to really fret about at the turn of the 20th century, and that is to say, uh, I mentioned it uh, a moment ago, uh, lots of counties, especially in that in the midsection of the country, rural counties, are losing population. People are leaving, and they're moving to the cities. Uh, how are we going to? Well, we can't keep them down on the farm uh, because farming itself has become a highly Industrialized operation. And part of what that means is it requires fewer and fewer people. So it's not like you can just Mm -hmm. keep them down on the farm. Uh, There is no farm work for them because it's all been replaced by machinery and whatnot. Okay. So what are we going to do to keep them there? Because again, we believe that people should be living out there. Well, where is the economic growth taking place? Where is the job growth taking place? It's in manufacturing and other kinds of industrial jobs. Aha. So Let's figure out ways to move the factories out into the farm fields so that the farm kids will not move into the cities. That's what Talmadge is really up to. He tries to sell it. I don't remember if I put this in the book or not, but in some of the Senate debates, he links this to um, what, what urban historians refer to as the urban crisis of the late 60s and early 70s. See, the cities are overcrowded because all of these. Uh, these rural people are moving in and it's causing all this trouble. And so if you support this bill, Senator from New York, uh, then things in New York will be better too, because you won't have this crush of people that continue to leave the country and move into the city. That was a nice little bit of uh, political rhetoric. Uh, The bill does pass. But in, I guess what I would add to this, though, is that this has been something the federal government started to do um, certainly as early as the New Deal. Um, and, and I think in some ways you can see it even predating that. Let's go back to water for just a moment. The Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, which in some ways is mm-hmm. the New Deal's largest, most uh, comprehensive kind of project, uh, was was designed well it's designed for flood control sure but it was also designed um for uh, rural electrification so that uh factories would move out into these places because now they could have cheap reliable electric City. So, I mean, and that's explicit in, in what uh, what the New Dealers are talking about. They also want people to leave the cities and move back into the country. We know they're not going to be farmers anymore. Uh, so let's let's get the factories out there so that they we can we can hold people in those places and they and they won't migrate. That's really the goal. So again, you know, this is another way in which the federal government is stepping in to try to stimulate economic development in these rural places.
0: And it strikes me, and this is, I mean, this is just an aside. I mean, you know, where I currently teach um, in Charleston, Illinois, countless towns around here... They are industrial towns, despite how people themselves often want to depict them, right? Like there is Mm -hmm. a factory downtown. There are several manufacturing spots in Charleston. But yeah, even in sort of the popular imagination, these places are still imagined as like, oh, that's just a nice little farming community, right? It's a nice little college town. Um, It's just interesting how sort of despite in many cases the historical realities or sort of the economic realities of rural towns, you know, small small towns are – sort of ignored because people want to continue believing in this sort of like uh this myth that you're you're, you're exactly trying to break right. down
2: and and you'll discover that at least some number of uh of the workers in those plants are are hobby farmers um and and so that's still how they see their own identity uh they they have this factory job because that's actually what pays the bills and and so on and so forth but they they rent some acres and they do some farming because somehow that's that's what their identity is all about yeah i one of the things i did look at in the mm-hmm. book um is is uh, the automobile industry and in particular here in ohio uh the the arrival of honda in the late 70s and honda's manufacturing plant, more or less in the middle of the state, Uh, its engine plant is located in a town with about 1,700 people. I think more people go to work each day in that plant than live in the town. Uh, So these little places are heavily industrialized. Absolutely. And again, you're right. We just don't like to see it that way.
1: Speaking of industrialization, then, you know, there's, you know, that there's a sort of mixed legacy with uh, rural industrialization because you know place because if a place can be industrialized it can certainly be also disindustrialized like or deindustrialized. Um, you write there are essentially two possible outcomes when a factory or the big company that builds it come to a small place. Either can, either venture can, you know, can be successful or it fails, right? Um, and if it succeeds, then the place tends to grow, and the growth creates frictions, large and small, between newcomers and old timers. Um, you know, this can affect tax base, social landscape, the housing market, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these changes force us to reconsider and challenge those myths we have about rural places, the inherent and timeless charm. That certain locales seem to hold. You also continue, to, you know, and and say that uh, deindustrialization can hit these places much harder, as there's little economic diversity for a community to find safety in. So my question then is. Um, this rather broad one, but in what ways does rural, the uh, you know, rural industrialization shape our mainstream understandings of both the process of industrialization, but also the history of deindustrialization in America?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, um, and and that's a hard one. Uh, I've I've been instructed by counsel not to answer that. Um, <laughs> so let let me start by saying uh, I'm, I'm going to take two steps back. Uh, take a kind of running start at that question. When I I think about this in terms of the way I teach my students, and so we get to the post-war period in American history. I'm going to do this in my urban history class this semester, and what I talk about is the creation of the Rust Belt and the rise of the Sun Belt, and that's the standard conventional narrative about the industrialization. The factories all close in Detroit, and they all move down to Alabama. Um, Okay, and that's all true as far as it goes. Over the last number of years, especially when I was working on this book, um, one of the things I've realized that narrative kind of misses uh, pretty pretty entirely is the extent to which agriculture itself continues to industrialize more and more and more and more. So rather than thinking of the farm economy as somehow different from the industrial economy, I see it increasingly as Simply another dimension of the industrial economy. One of the things I, I put in the book is that as early as the nineteen twenties, uh, the International Harvester Corporation, which you know manufactures uh, farm equipment of lots of different kinds, uh, began a marketing campaign under the slogan "Every Farm a Factory," um, because if you bought the latest equipment, you know you could achieve that kind of industrial-scale production, industrial-scale efficiencies. So actually, I think that I've been rethinking this notion of deindustrialization uh, in this way as well. I think that um, the other thing that you point to here and, and what we're talking about is the fact that not all of those factories moved to the Sunbelt. A lot of them simply moved, you know, 100 miles down the highway to uh into what used to be farm space um and so we might have to think about deindustrialization really as more maybe more narrowly in the conventional sense that yes uh, detroit and flint and cleveland and pittsburgh did experience these factory closings, the loss of the jobs, and then everything that comes from that, the loss of population, the loss of tax revenues, etc. Uh, but but like I said, the automobile industry in Ohio uh, continues to thrive. Um, and it's all located now that, you know, the kind of, I, I think of uh, the Marysville Honda plant as as the sun around which a whole series of other ancillary plants revolve. And all of those places, uh, those factories are located in rural spaces. So you still go to Cleveland, you can see the effects of the loss of the steel industry there. Uh, but you go to Marysville and, uh, you know, and it's now it was a, a little farm town now it's a basically a suburb of columbus because the the growth of that plant um has transformed that whole place
0: yeah i but that I, this is a part of the book that I really appreciated, because I think, um, you know, like, you know, you're focused on rural history, but I also think there's like this, you know, there's there's something that's going on in people who study urban history, which also explores sort of deindustrialization as this like singular event, or, 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 or its causes are not always explored. And I think that deindustrialization is not one thing, but actually caused by several things, whether that's you know, like actual outside competition or, you know, policy decisions or automation or like what you're describing, just like the movement of capital, whether that is, you know, what is often assumed as like the Sunbelt or, you know, non-union places. But but, but more importantly, like, yes, like these rural places that are actually not that far away from, you know, Chicago or Cleveland, um, where these factories just sort of... Popped up to me in in being in conversations with people who are interested in sort of Rust Belt studies or deindustrialization. That tends to be an overemphasis on the you know highly urbanized histories in that story, um, which also exclude rural industrialization and deindustrialization as a result of that.
2: Yeah, um, and I want to add one other thing to that, Camden. Uh, So, so the 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 rise of the Sun Belt story, yes, it's about. Federal sub- and state subsidies, yes. Mm-hmm. It's about, uh, you know, escaping unionized labor forces. Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. all true. However, I think there's another dimension to this that I that I looked at a little bit uh, in the book, and that is to say that during the Second World War, I think that there, there is a revolution in the process of manufacturing altogether. And, and I'll summarize it by saying uh, we went from vertical to horizontal. Uh, what what I think a lot of industrial designers uh, uh, came to and the war is a great kind of I don't know uh, kickstart to all of this uh, what they what they discover is that the the kind of the old uh, 19th century um, layout of a manufacturing plant is not as efficient as something that is one story and horizontal you go in at one end and you come out at the other end in fairness right, right uh, again acknowledging that that this is about, unions and it's about race and it's about uh all kinds of other things. It is simply very difficult to build a modern manufacturing plant, one story horizontal, uh in the middle of Chicago. Uh yeah, yeah. So I do think that part of the appeal uh and, and in this sense, right, so rural spaces, let's 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 turn this around a little bit, say rural spaces are on the cutting edge of the industrial process because it's where these new manufacturing processes actually get worked out, uh in these low slung, one story um, uh plants that you that you just can't build in crowded urban spaces.
0: Rural America, right, as we're talking about, is, is, is thoroughly incorporated. It's a mix of family farms that are often organized as corporate entities, co-ops that often run like corporations or monopolies, um, and of course, a scattering of national chains that often prey, or as you outline in the book, in the case of Al Jr., the former CEO of Dollar General, even celebrate the economic hardship yes. of rural America. Um, this is this is far from the yeoman myth, right? Right, um, and I guess my question is is broader, bigger, and, and maybe bigger than this podcast allows, but really just a space for you to explore it. But as you read this, it continues to come to the forefront that, like, despite these massive changes, right? Why do you think this sort of yeoman myth persists?
2: Yeah. So right, if I had the answer to that question, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Uh, So I'm just going to speculate because I I don't know that I have um, uh, a really definitive and totally persuasive way of answering that question. I think one way to answer it is um, it is so much in the water that Americans have been drinking since 1790 that it's really hard to to let it go. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, pointed out in in the beginning of the book is that this this myth gets perpetuated again not simply by rural people but precisely by the kinds of people who invented it in the first place. That is to say, uh, east coast located commentators who look out at parts of Nebraska yeah. and think, ah, that's the real America. You know, I think that uh, it, it, it it is certainly undergirded uh, by the political structures, which give rural voters more power than urban voters. Mm-hmm. And that's both at the federal level, but also at the state level. So you're there in Charleston, Illinois, if I'm remembering correctly, the Supreme Court case that um, that that created the principle of one person, one vote comes out of Illinois in the early 1960s. It's a state level case because mm-hmm. in 1960, uh, I'm going to make this up approximately, um, you know, Sixty percent of all people in Illinois lived in Cook County, uh, but Cook County had about 10 percent of the representation in the state house uh, because they hadn't redrawn the district since 1900. Uh, so and that's true in lots of different states. The kind of gerrymandering, the overrepresentation mm-hmm. of rural voices mean that this kind of rhetoric can be amplified politically. It can be uh, it's more easily put into policy. Um, which again, starts in the, in the 1930s. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now, and again, total speculation, uh, the, the, the reason that this may has kind of been amplified in our current political moment may precisely be because uh, rural America sees itself uh, as as under this kind of threat. And the threat in this sense is, um, is the demographic threat. Um, I, I think the census uh, now categorizes 25% of Americans as rural. That's one in four. Any, in any other kind of uh, democratic context, that's a pitiful minority. Um, and, and yet, uh, because we are so accustomed to sort of genuflecting in front of this, um, these, these people kind of have an outsized voice in our, in our debates. There was a report that just got issued oh, maybe last week, Uh, by some uh, think tank research operation in Pennsylvania. It's a demographic projection of the state, and lo and behold, what it discovers or what it projects is that most rural counties in Pennsylvania are going to lose population by 2050, 25 years from now. uh, And some of these rural counties are going to almost collapse in terms of their population. That's again. That's the trend line. That's the kind of reality. And so there may be that may that may in turn sort of generate uh, a yearning, a longing uh, that somehow we we wish this weren't
0: happening. Yeah, or or the creation of a, a sort of new Talmadge style program that yeah. then sort of recapitulates the myth while dramatically changing the economic backbone of those places.
2: Yeah. The the tricky bit about that. I mean, that's a really interesting uh, observation. Um, the tricky bit about that, right. Is that in the 1930s, uh, rural people supported the new deal and, and they got their. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nowadays rural people have they, you know, they, they, they overwhelmingly, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but certainly in large majorities, they have adopted the Ronald Reagan ethos that the government is bad. Um, so that's, and, and, and so this is an example I've used in, in some other talks I've done here. Uh, 1932, you know, uh, 90% of rural households don't have electricity. Uh, by 1960. 90% of rural households do have electricity, and that's all because of the New Deal's Rural Mm -hmm. Electrification Administration. Fast forward uh, to the last 10 or 15 years, and what we hear all the time is rural America doesn't have access to broadband internet, Uh, and that that has all kinds of economic consequences and educational consequences, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But the politicians coming out of those places are not going to support a government-funded solution to that problem. Uh, the private mm-hmm. sector is not going to deliver broadband internet to those places. It's not economically profitable, uh, which was the case with power companies in the 1930s. So you know, at some level you, you maybe need to think about a different relationship to the federal government if you want to try to solve some of these problems.
0: Yeah. We can get down the, yeah, <laughs> so much, I, I've got thoughts, but we, we'll keep moving. <laughs>
1: Um, so throughout this book, you challenge readers to shift their perspective and as you can see the the two podcast hosts uh, have had their minds blown um but you know you sort of challenge us uh, as readers to uh, shift our perspective, you know thinking of rural space as militarized right as industrialized and as incorporated and we've sort of touched on this uh, earlier as well. and so in the final section of the book, uh, you know you do the same and it prompts the reader to consider post war suburbanization as an urban out demographic pattern rather you um, you know claim that you know these um, these are not post rural uh, that these spaces actually became post rural that is uh, places where rural suburban demographic shift occurred and you go on to write overlooking the rural influx into post war suburbia has in turn Uh, meant that we haven't fully understood the political dynamics of the suburbs during those decades. Um, And it's hard to disagree with that. Um, But then, you know, what have we missed by primarily focusing on urban flight to the suburbs? How does rural suburbanization shape our understanding of American political economy in the second half of the 20th century?
2: Yeah, so... That's a topic that that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, I I identify myself uh, as often as not as an urban historian. And so, you know, maybe this is just in the Department of Irony that um, the first book I wrote was about people who don't like cities and the second book I wrote was about uh, uh, people who, you know, rural Americans that, yeah, we we explore what that says about my own career. but. I think what I started to recognize was, well first, that the numbers just don't add up. Uh, the, the white flight model um, does not explain the, the really explosive growth of the post-war suburb. Um, it also, there, there were some, some, what seemed to me like obvious dots that hadn't been connected. The suburbs are growing and simultaneously um, in, the, in the Northeast and the Midwest, urban populations are declining and rural populations are declining. Well, okay, so where are those rural people going? Well, they're not moving into Chicago. We know that because Chicago's population is cratering and they're not moving into Philadelphia uh, or Milwaukee or Minneapolis. Uh, Aha, I think they're probably moving into these exploding suburbs, right, which are growing far faster than than a kind of, uh, right, center periphery model uh, allows you to explain one of the things I think, so I, I tried to develop a typology in the book um, when we look at these post-war suburbs, and I was I was looking at some areas right around the Twin Cities in Minnesota. That's where I, I decided to dive down and and do um, some digging. There there are essentially three kinds of suburbanites in that uh, in that let's say immediate post-war generation. Uh, you have the white flight model. You have the people who move out of Minneapolis looking for a bigger house or a yard or whatever it happens to be. Uh, you have the people who are moving in from, uh, I don't know, the Red River Valley uh, or from North Dakota uh, in in uh, rural parts of that region. And then you have some number of people who were already there as farmers, uh, small producers, and watch these uh, suburbs Kind of pop up all around them, and in many cases, selling off their own farmland uh, to build these houses because that's always the most profitable crop. Uh, but they stay. So you've got these three kinds of people who are negotiating uh, this this newly developed space. One of the things I think that's that that I would like to explore more someday. I didn't get to this as much as I might have in the book is the relationship. That begins to develop between property rights and uh, and and a kind of uh, a, a new right political agenda. I think for rural people, uh, they many of them are deeply suspicious of anything that infringes on their property rights. And I, I spent a little bit of time talking about zoning fights. When areas begin to develop, uh and zoning laws begin to be proposed uh rural people oppose these because because that is they want to be able to do with their land whatever it is they want to do um that that then gets i think morphs into becoming central to their definition of what freedom means uh and what what freedom means is is the if i can i can have a bonfire in my backyard i can shoot the raccoons that are up in the trees and i don't have any government entity telling me i can't do that i think that that kind of fetishizing of property rights, which, you know, which starts in some ways with Barry Goldwater, but certainly uh you you hear it more and more and more, um, is rooted in the rural transformation into into post-war suburb. But again, I didn't explore that as much as I might have in the book. That's that's maybe a project for for later on.
0: Yeah. And and just to say, I mean like the, the you made this at the start of the comment just sort of like being an urban historian who turned towards the rural, I do think that probably brings with it a, a different lens and, and way to study space that isn't necessarily as loaded as if you were to you know, start as a quote-unquote rural historian.
2: Yeah, I, I, I hope that's true. Uh, I think, right, in this case, I'm hoping that kind of uh, blind ignorance was a certain kind of advantage. Um, but I, I guess I would also, I'm, I, I, I mean no offense to anybody, but it does also, it seemed to me when I was working on this book, that rural history has been kind of neglected by the profession for a long time now, um, and, and I think that's mm-hmm. too bad, um, because I do think that there's, there's some interesting action out there, um, but, but right, maybe, maybe this will help kind of jumpstart some of those scholarly
0: conversations. Yeah. And maybe that's a great segue to the to the last question here, because we've taken up so much of your time here. But I'm curious, <laughs> you know, listeners of the podcast, um, you know, what should we be taking away from this? How should we, you know, readjust our understandings and perhaps future studies of the Midwest and Midwest rural places uh, based on your work? Yowza. Well, I think the first takeaway from from my book, I hope that listeners will,
2: will get, is that books really do make terrific gifts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, you've got a birthday coming up, or or an event, so so I hope people keep that in mind. At the end of the book, uh, one of the things I began to play with was what if we what if we stopped using the word rural altogether, uh, because it because it, as I said, it is largely a fictive comment. It is a blank, or a fictive term. It's it's a blank screen onto which we can project all kinds of of mythologies, all kinds of yearnings, all kinds of nostalgia. What if instead we started to think about the nation arranged along a spectrum of population density? Uh, so some places in the country are really dense—San Francisco, Boston. Uh, other places in the country are are really not very dense. Um, that you know, I don't know, North Dakota, um, and and so forth. Uh, but that but that really we are all tied together in the same political economy, uh, and, and we always have been that's the point. Rural America has never stood apart from, um, uh, the rest of what was going on, uh, in, in, you know, American capitalism. And then, and then we could maybe get a better sense of what, what is required, uh, to make life in less dense places sustainable. And what are, what are the prices we are willing or not willing to pay? We've already talked about the way in which r- rural places, uh less dense places have to be subsidized and they always have been we don't talk about it in those terms uh but maybe if we were just to acknowledge look if, if you really if you live in a rural place and you want access to health care uh, that's going to mean some kind of federally funded or, or publicly funded uh, clinic or hospital private sector isn't doing that. We know that because, uh, rural health systems are collapsing all over the country and those Mm -hmm. facilities are being closed. So the for-profit model is not going to deliver healthcare in less dense places. Okay. So then we can have a conversation about whether that is worth it to us collectively or whether it's not. That's, I think what I'd hope we, that's the, that's the way maybe I'd like to reorient the conversation.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, well, Steve, thank you so much for this wonderful yes. conversation.
2: Well, thank you for reaching out. Um, this was really swell. Uh, fun questions. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, all. Thank you. Have a great day.